Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of our American Scouser podcast. I am Galley, sitting in the big chair today, filling in for Timuchin, who is at some form of one of his daughter's uh, art award shows. I couldn't pick up whether or not she was receiving the award. She knew she was getting the award, but Timuchin is there, which probably means he's making other people uncomfortable, wishing he was here with... Well, no, he probably isn't actually wishing he was here with either of us. On a day like today, Paul, what a day to be alive and what a day to be a Liverpool supporter. I'd say we have the gamut to cover tonight. Yeah, it was a it was a long dusty road on social media today. I looked, I got up this morning and I said, nope, not today, Satan. And uh, then proceeded to spend the rest of my day on social media anyway. But um I mean, these are the these are the crosses that we are meant to bear, I, I suppose. Yeah, and you know, and we're we're gonna get to that. And I think, um, and as always, um, we're gonna start as we always do with greetings from Houston, even though he was second into the shoot today. So good on BJ for finally figuring out a way to beat Allen to the comment section. Um, we appreciate you both very much, as always. For anyone else here new to the program, if you like and share, save subscribe we will love you but if you just want to get engaged feel free to make comments we'll bring them up on screen hopefully you can be part of the discussion especially later um as everybody is aware there was some big news that bomb shelled out today but before we do that we have to start hold up hold I mean, up hold up yep i want you to get into it but we got to do this right especially because commutions out do you put the trivia thing up do you have the button perfect Brother, this was this was oh, right. it was actually coming up. Yeah, no there you what. go. We got it. And the truth was, I was going to bring that up to say this is how we start every show, but I don't like to ruin people's time, so we're going to skip over this goddamn segment. Well, we're not. We're not skipping oh, it because Galley. Because Galley. What was the last win Southampton had at Anfield Stadium? Do you know? It? The last, the last time win in the Premier League era that Southampton had at Anfield. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it the last one that Hassel Hooten got when he cried on the pitch during the COVID year? Nope. No. Oh, they got oh. that. That's right. They got that win at Southampton, didn't they? Yep. Last win they got was the last win that they had at Liverpool. Sadio Mane's last match there. For them when he scored uh, against us. I think it was before that. I think it was wow. a couple of years before that. Anyway, it was yeah. nine years ago, 2013 14. Uh, 1 0. So that. I thought Mane was, well, was it 14 15? Yeah, you could be right. It probably you it probably wasn't. It probably maybe that was a different match. I remember he scored a big goal against us. So they made a big deal about how he always scored at Anfield, basically. <laughs> constantly when he played for Southampton. So the last league win for Southampton against us was nine years ago at Anfield. Yep. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what I hope and pray that that uh, streak continues um, because I, that, that would, that would just be a fitting, fitting way to come off of the match we just had on Sunday. Um, and we're going to get to that because 
I was uh, very impressed at times and then, you know, frustrated at times as we hung on for dear life. But let's not bury the plot talking about the second half before we at least talk about our response to seeing the lineup. So we'll start with you on this one, Paul, you know, where we normally start, right? The lineup is released. What are your initial thoughts? How close were you to it? How far off? Uh, I mean, barring whatever is happening with Henderson right now, this is the best starting 11. So, I mean, no major, major arguments for me uh, outside of Jordo, Jordo being out. But like, like I said, that's his own situation right now. So, yeah, I mean, I was pretty happy with this. I thought this was probably the best you could have done in a must win game. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. Uh, there were a little bit of, you know, I think I had a little trepidation. I think if, if Spurs were a full side and coming at us with Son and Kulisevsky and Kane from the beginning and had Richarlison on the bench to change it late, I would have questioned whether or not we need it more on the bench in case we need it to tactically change the match. But when you see this lineup, to me, this was all about winning this match in the first 45 minutes. And I think it's what they tried to do. And they did everything they could in the second 45 to give it back. Um, but in that first 45, I felt like this was probably the best 11. Um, I want to start at the back. You know, I think we've been talking about this a lot. We're on the same page here. I, I thought Kanate was immense. I thought he was outstanding. I think he was arguably, you could have made him the man of the match. Um, I think he put in that type of a performance. And they weren't. It's not like Spurs had a great um, had great success moving forward, but there were times that they looked like they could get behind us. And anytime they did, Kanate ran them down. And I, I think his pace is consistently overlooked when we look at the mountain of a man. I don't think he gets enough credit for how quick he is and how much actual closing speed he has because he's moving so much girth with him every time he goes. Uh, but I thought he was absolutely immense. And I do think you see a more assured Trent when he's next to him. And I don't know that that is mental or physical in Trent's play, or if he just knows that he can gamble a little bit more because he has that cover and protection there when Kanate's there at the back with him. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably, I think that's probably fair. I think, I think Trent probably does psychologically feel a little better having Kanate on that side. I mean, we talked about this before. I still think, you know, you look at the three really, really successful windows we had in a row where you've got players like Jota and Diaz that came off firing right out of the window. And we were like, man, like they went, those two players went down as the signings of the seasons across the Premier League. That's how people are talking about that. I think amongst that window, I think Inate is going to prove to be the most important piece out of all of them. Um, I just think from a, a longevity standpoint and, and from a fundamental cornerstone piece that you can build on towards the future, we always talked about, you know, him being Virgil's partner. Uh, eventually, I think he's going to be Virgil's replacement, really, in terms of like how this ends up looking. Um, yeah, he, he does get massively underappreciated and probably massively underrated in terms of his his overall pace. I think that's because like he's got that length in that sort of um, height that Verge has, right? But I think he's got longer legs, so it just looks it looks like a gangly mess at times. Uh, we always kind of talk. It's, he's got that like bamboo on uh, or that Bambi on ice type thing that uh, we always talk about Sako having, right? 
But I think I think there's a lot more coordination there than we kind of give it credit for. I, I think he's just immense, and it's got to help Trent for sure. It's got to help the whole back line. I think, you know, I think more than anything, he makes Verge better right now, which is kind of wild when we when we talk about it like that. But I think like when he's next to Verge, Verge looks better. Um, and I just think you know, at the end of the day, like. Um, no slight on Joe Gomez, but like I think that not having Matip and Kanate healthy has been huge for that center back partnership because I mean we got to talk about last year where for a large portion of the season Matip was our best center back, um, and I just don't know if the if we've got the if Matip still has the wheels for it um, because he's just getting up there in age, but like to have one of those two back like, consistently healthy is is absolutely huge. So if there was ever a match to get going early, I felt like this was a prime example of one where you had to show up. And I, I, you know, I think in the pre-match show, I had said something like, I have no clue what to expect here. You could be three up at the half and feel like this game is good night delights, or you could literally be nil nil and questioning whether you could break them down. And then, you know, cause they were clearly set up to keep that game close to 60, 70 minutes hope for Harry Kane to do exactly what he did, which was create one opportunity, really good one and take it. Um, and I, I just felt the whole time, like you really needed an early goal was going to be something that was so important. Um, most scores after 11 minutes, you know, the ball gets, you know, the, the nice forward pass, obviously Darwin absolutely knocks the thing down. Uh, it's a great first touch by him. He finds, you know, the, the selfish Darwin that can't do anything but shoot, um, finds the square ball. Mo will never get enough credit when he scores goals because it does take him maybe two or three more chances than it does most great goal scorers, right? He'll get five and he hits three, but they're all class. And what he did on that, I mean, the first touch is absolutely sublime and the second touch is even better and it's in the back of the net. Um do you think we underestimate Mo at this point? Like he scored in 10 consecutive fixtures and we're talking about his scoring slump. I think he's a little bit of a victim of his own success, right? Like I think I think we're so used to seeing this like this just absolute like generational talent. Like I don't think that people that like I think it's really easy to get on this hype chain with Liverpool and see this team clicking the way it clicks and not understand that that's not normal. You know, I think like I think the old timers would tell you like, you know, the old timers will tell you that Mo Salah is one of the greats in this club, like up there with Fowler and Dagleish and like the all time greats of this club. Um, and I think that we forget about that. We think I think there's a lot of talk about the contract, um, which is funny considering that everybody was shouting to just pay him whatever and not worry about it. And then everybody was, oh, it's the contract. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if you look, it's interesting because I think you can make the same argument for Nunez, who's 22. Like, these got like, are they as clinical as we'd like them to be? I don't think any striker really is. But, like, what they do is they create chances in absolute loads. And so, like, it, it doesn't matter if you're not hitting in this elite percentile, like, so I'll give you an example, right? Like to me, Olivia Giroud is one of the most clinical strikers of all time. Like you no give question. him a chance, you give him a chance and he'll score it out of nothing. You know, you could probably say the same about a player like Harry Kane. Like those, those, those players just 
put away chances in, in they don't need a whole lot of them to put them away. But like, does it really matter? Like if those, those players don't, those two players, Harry Kane creates more chances for other people. I don't think you can say that about Olivier Giroud necessarily, no. but what, what's different with those players is they don't necessarily create as many chances. Like they don't create chances off just pace. They don't create chance off of vision and, and, and off the ball movement as much as like Mo and, and Nunez will. Like those are two players that are at completely different ends of their careers, but are very similar in the fact that they don't need to be necessarily clinical to be like elite because they just create so many chances. Before we talk a little bit more about Nunez, cause I do want to dissect his play uh, a little bit here, but before we go into that, you made a comment earlier while we're still kind of on the lineup in our response, you made the comment about Henderson. And I'd like to get your take on this because it's come up in the pre-match show. I think it even came up on one of the morning uh, coffee, um, one of the morning coffee or tea programs that we do. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Timuchin and a guest of uh, a variety of different guest hosts do a YouTube and Facebook show every morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time to go over all the day's news. Uh, So please check that out and leave comments, give ideas, ways we can improve that. We're really finding it to be a really great way to communicate uh, with some of our viewers and subscribers. So with Henderson, do you think it's just down to fitness? Do you think there's something going on? Because he's been named fully fit and even acknowledged he was fully practicing and not getting into clap side. And I mean, I made the comment during the pre-match show. I know no one liked it because they all think I'm a conspiracy theorist, I think. And I got a tin hat on or something. He hasn't actually started a match for Liverpool since the Arsenal match. And him and Klopp actually had a argument on the pitch after the match. Now, I don't know if that was about what happened to Klopp on the sidelines, if it's about what happened on the pitch and what, you know, in that conversation with Gabrielle. Like, do you think something has happened between him and Klopp? Or do you genuinely, in your heart, believe Harvey Elliott has absolutely jumped him in the full depth chart as the captain of the club? I can't go there yet, which is maybe why I'm coming to there's something else going on. Maybe it is a knock. Um, He doesn't look like he's carrying a knock when I watch him play. He looks like Jordan Henderson doing Jordan Henderson things. He just looks like a little bit older version of it and – I'm just so trying to make heads my, or tails of this. My answer is yes. Uh, and I th- I'll tell you why. I, th- I think it's both. Uh, it, because, like, if you look historically at what Jurgen Klopp does is he latches on to a young talent, right? It, it, it was Goetze Dortmund, right? I mean, he, land- he usually latches on to a young talent, paves the way for them into a starting eleven. And it is somewhat committed to seeing that player at least reach regular, consistent starting 11 minutes. I believe that player in this side is Harvey Elliott. Now, Jordan Henderson, despite what people have said over the years, I think will go down as one of the greatest Liverpool captains ever. I think he gets a lot of stuff, a lot of shake because he's not Steven Gerrard from a talent standpoint. I think he's a better leader. And I think in terms of what he does inside of a side, I think he's just as important because he's a metronome in the midfield. The ball moves at a completely different pace and a completely different consistency and crispness when he's in there than when he's not. I think 
I I think there's something to the drama. I I I genuinely think that there is. I do think that there were words exchanged. I do think that it, it and part of that is because I think I'm in the camp that Jurgen Klopp has run the rails off this team and is asking his team to do things that it's physically not capable of. And I think what what happens, what would you expect of a tight-knit team if a manager was doing that? You, you would expect the leader to stand up and be like, we can't do it. What you're asking us to do, we can't physically do. So don't ask us to do it and then be upset when we can't. And I think that's what I, that's what I genuinely believe happened. And I believe probably in hindsight – Jurgen will look back and feel differently about some of the things he's done from a tactical standpoint uh, with this side um, it, and from a transfer side. And I think, I think when he looks back at it, he's, I think both of these are, are players and manager. This is a player and a manager. I think that both have a huge mutual respect for each other. And I think that they will have a mutual respect for each other after their careers are over. But yeah, I think that there is a rift there. And I think that is partly to play. I also think historically speaking, Klopp has shown that he kind of picks a picks a youngster, and I think Harvey's his youngster. Um, Hendo's just not a starter. I, I would add the caveat that he's probably not a 90-minute starter every single week. Um, but I, I think in your best matches, in your biggest spots, that's who you want in there. And I guess that's what shocked me about him not starting on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. And, you know, that was part of – part of my commentary on the pre-match show was, listen, you could tell me I need Harvey Elliott in this match. I think he creates, I think he offers something going down the right. Then my argument would have been then Jordan Henderson starts over Fabinho on current form, unless there is something else that is going on. They weren't playing the double pivot. We've seen him utilize Henderson at the base many times. So it's not like he's not afraid to put him in that position. And it isn't just because James Milner wasn't available and we needed someone else on the bench. If anything, that was more reason to have your captain on the pitch from the jump, um, which is what led me to be, you know, question the, the maybe the motive. And I, I do agree with you. Klopp has always done that. Um, you know, at, at one point, and we don't want to hear this because I'm not advocating, but at one point that young player at Dortmund was young captain America who was coming through and he was trying his hardest to get him into his side. At another point, it was at the beginning of his tenure at Dortmund. It was basically he who gave Marco Royce the keys to become the world-class talent at 20 years old. The crazy part is, is Marco Royce is the only player who actually didn't leave Dortmund and has stayed the entire time um, and continued to build on his own legacy there. So I don't know that I agree with Sparky Parky either. I still think Henderson is, a starter in the most important matches, you know, um, I do think he's necessary for this side and, you know, maybe this was load management on his legs too, knowing he is going to Qatar and he may not play a lot, but he's going to run a lot in the sun and he's going to spend three weeks training on the road. And maybe this is kind of watching the minutes of one of the most senior players he has that is on his way off to the world cup. Um, so we'll have to see where that goes. Let's talk a little bit about Darwin. You know, I, I, I think I described him as a tornado of chaos because I feel like at every angle he went, we lost Paul somehow. So I'll take this on to the monologue at this point. I feel a little bit here like, like what Darwin does is he utilizes his speed. He utilizes just high-paced energy. 
Um, more importantly than anything else, I think he causes havoc for defenders in tough spots of the pitch. He uses his speed, which I, for the one, will raise my hand and say was a shocker for me. I watched him a good amount at Benfica. I had no idea he was this fast or this quick. Um, seen him run down players all over the pitch. Um, more importantly, I think he's starting to figure out the positions on the pitch that are best for him to shoot, the positions that are best for him to pass. Decision-making is going to be um, a huge area of improvement for him, but I think that is that for any young player, whether we're talking about Curtis Jones, we're talking about Harvey Elliott, and I think we can see the raw talent. Um, his half-volley shot that... Loris um, pairs wide is a great save. It should be saved, um, but that is a very well-taken volley uh, or off the half volley. It was heading goalward. I think the um, couple blocks that Eric Dyer got on him were really, really great. I know he had the time where he took the fullback to the baseline, to the touchline and, you know, uh, completely kicked it off. I think Paul is back with us now. Yep, there he is. Technical difficulties aside, Sorry from North Carolina. Um, I was just mentioning as I did the little monologue, like, you know, I, I described him as a tornado of chaos. He just wreaks havoc wherever he goes. I raised my hand and admitted that I was absolutely wrong about his overall pace. I knew he was quick. I didn't know he was fast. Like, I didn't know he was literally the fastest person this year to play a match in the Premier League, um, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone saw that. Like, anyone knew that. And we've all seen him in the Champions League, right? I mean, he, he had great matches against us, and we're like, oh, it looks like a player, you know? Um, yeah, I, I don't think any of us saw that. I mean, let's be honest. None of us really follow the Portuguese League that closely. I dug in after I knew we were linked with him and watched some stuff, talked to some people that I know do follow the Portuguese League. But, I mean, he's just a super raw talent. I mean, and that's the thing. I think anybody who really follows the Portuguese league will tell you that he's basically the opposite of Luis Diaz, where we got essentially a, a very technically proficient player in Luis Diaz, and we got the opposite in um, in Nunez, where he's got generational tight ceiling, but like he's still very much raw, and and he's got all that pace. I think the, there's two major things with with Nunez that need to be drastically improved for him to kind of hit that next level. And one is one's that that's going to be his first touch. Like he's got, yeah. sometimes he's got two left handers for feet. Um, and I think that's going to sort itself out eventually. Um, I mean, I can tell you that they're just going to throw stuff at him for training session after training session until he starts getting more comfortable. I think that will come with time as he settles into the side as well. Uh, I think the other thing is going to be his decision-making, right? Um, and this is really, and I think that's harder than the touch. I really do because I think that you can train technical things out of somebody, but mentalities are really hard. And especially in a striker who has been relied on at every level that he's played on to carry the weight of his goals, like to carry that goal burden for the side, his mentality is shoot first and ask questions later. Right. And the side is very much developed to a point where like, we have guys dummying runs. We have guys laying off overlaps. We have guys looking at far posts that are open. We have so many different talented uh, offensive skilled players that are making incredible runs to the box. It's going to be very, very uh, interesting to see how that develops. In a weird way, he's kind of got this opposite thing from Harvey Elliott. Where, like, when I watch Harvey, 
Harvey looks like the kid who's playing in an adult league who's 17 and clearly really talented, but wants all the 32-year-olds to like him a lot. So he makes sure that they have the ball. Where Nunez is like, has the ball, and he's like, I'm just going to rip it in from wherever I'm at at the pitch, regardless of – without even picking his head up, right? And I think that picking that head up and processing plays will come as he gets more comfortable with the pace and physicality of the Premier League, but it's also just in his DNA as a striker, and that's that's probably going to be the harder thing to sort out. Yeah, I, I, the decision-making is a great – I mean, that was another piece I mentioned. You know, it has to improve. It will improve. It's this, It's no different. I think Harvey needs to – it needs to improve some of his decision-making at times. And to, to your point, I think it's a really good one. Harvey needs, as much as Darwin needs a little bit of Harvey's, I can be a complimentary player to Mo. Yep. Every once in a while, I want Harvey to play like the kid who was on loan, who thought he was yeah, the best too. player on the pitch. Because There's times that's where Harvey could, could take somebody on. You can see That's it. why he, you're like, there. Just take him on. Yeah. I mean, Klopp has got you in there because he believes you're ready to play with these men not be, you know, the young kid on the pickup softball team. Like everybody knows that like super, you know, men's league softball team that brings in like the 18 year old kid out of high school who was like the star baseball player and then gives them wet willies all year long. And, he, and the kid the whole time is like, dude, I was hitting home runs off minor league pitchers last year. And now I'm like shagging fly balls in this men's league beer league team. But you kind of earn your way in. And then once you earn your way, the thing is, is, they don't want the kid who doesn't feel he belongs. And I think that, that there's a mix there. I think there's a, there's a, there's a balance. And I, I think Nunez needs to get some of that. Harvey needs to, you know, or Nunez needs to probably give up a little bit of it. Harvey needs to get some of it. And I think Curtis Jones is the enigma of all of it because <laughs> yeah. he actually, he actually genuinely believes not only does he already have it. Yeah. Like, he belongs at the level of <laughs> Mo Salah and Bobby and these guys. Now, part of that is probably what, you know, I always used to say, the brash and defiant nature is what allows them to be the 1% of the best 1%. Yeah. But it's also sometimes what holds them back from actually reaching their maximum potential. And yeah. I, I don't think we'll see that. You know, the other big key to Darwin is, is, you know, a year ago at this time, we were all screaming, Every once in a while, we would like Robo to take a shot when he has a chance. And maybe yeah. Bobby could not look to set up Mo on a plate and just shoot when he's inside the box. Now we have a strike, a shoot for a striker. And it's yeah. like, why isn't anyone looking to square the ball to Mo? Right. And I, I, right. I, I get it. Like, it's so easy when it's not working to complain about all of it. But his, his goal involvement, his expected goals ratio, his underlying stats are off the charts. His, his, like, Attempts per, shots on goal per, everything per is the best in the entire Premier League. Because I'll just he's I'll come out and say it just if, needs if time. You're, if you're gonna look at the season and your takeaway from like a game like the Totten game or or even any of the games in the last month, if your takeaway is that Nunes is poor, like you don't know football. Because like I can tell you as a 22 year old in a foreign country in the hardest league in the world, not speaking the language. He's adapted far better than I thought he would adapt, to be perfectly honest with you. And he was not even supposed to be playing these minutes right now. If Luis Diaz was healthy, he would not be out there right now. And I, I think that that's getting lost in the shuffle a little bit. I just think we've got a lot of people who want want everything all the time without being realistic about what the situation is. So he's I, – I think – I think if anything, we've gotten better than we we expected and deserved out of him right now. Uh, and I think 
Does he, you know, we talk about the chaos he brings and how awesome it is. I, I agree to some extent, but I also think sometimes like it, it kind of throws things a little bit to, to oh, our, definitely does. like in a negative way, in, in the way that yeah. we play. I think, I think sometimes it's very hard to account for his positioning and like where he's going to go because he's unpredictably chaotic on both for both teams. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And I think once we figure that out or once he sort of starts continuing to adjust, I think that will be the perfect storm. And, and and it's a great point there. I, I have seen, I feel like he knows, and we've talked about this before, his best position is on the inside left, right? It's the inside left channel. It's running at those defenders. I think he looks more comfortable playing out on the left in our system than he does playing through the center. I still think eventually his position will be through the center of the pitch for this club. It might be with two up top where he plays on the left-hand side. Um, it might be him up top with like a Carvalho behind him. Heck, who knows? It might end up being what you've been calling for a little bit, Paul, and saying like it might be Mo through the middle, D Nunez on the left, Diaz on the right, and either Jota, Bobby, Elliot, Carvalho. People forget this too. Jota's greatest time playing in the Premier League was basically playing as a number 10 off a striker with yeah. Jimenez their first year up. So Jota can do that role. And there's another one. If Jota and Diaz are healthy, we're not seeing nearly as much Nunez this early in the season. Um, right. Sparky Parky said best first 45 Nunez has played. And I would agree with him. So let's talk about the second 45 minutes. The, response Tottenham had out of the out of the out of the half you attribute that to us starting poorly in the second half or Conte being a class manager and and you know getting in the ass of his team a little bit and saying you know what the bleep making a substitution or two and, and making changes at the half who is that more about us or them I think it's about both because I think it's about Conte's adjustment and our failure to have a plan to adjust to whatever was going to change. I think like you go into a half and, and you say, everything's working perfectly. Don't change anything. That's fine. But you also have to have the ability to understand that. Like if things are no longer fine, what's our move. Right. And I think that there had to have been some sort of in-game tactical adjustment made and we never made it. We never made it. And I think, I mean, that's hats off to Conte. I thought Kulisevsky changed the game when he came in. Like, uh, we were already kind of on the back foot, but him coming in, uh, I think sort of was like the final dagger in, in like us just, it was like, it was like we we're hanging on with one hand and he was stepping on our fingers. And I thought he was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Uh, the Harry Kane goal, I mean, you could probably nitpick Ali's positioning a little bit, but, like, look, Kane hits it in the only spot you can hit and score there, and that's what he does. Um, yeah. But, I mean, we, we like, he praised on Kanate, and Kanate was, like, a half-step slow. Like, he just didn't quite get there in time. But, I mean, that's another that's another striker with a lot of range who's extremely clinical and who's long-legged. And, I mean, it's just a very tough play to defend, period. Uh, but I, I really think that, like, the story for me, second half, was our inability to make adjustments. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I was really disappointed, honestly, with the overall performance of the second half. Um, you know, I feel like you have to have the killer instinct to go get the third, especially after they score the second. I felt like then it was just like it literally became squeaky bum time and we just hung on for the last 25 minutes of that match. Uh, and I don't know about you. 
maybe it's the lack of confidence. Maybe it's, you know, losing to Leeds and Forest and back-to-back weekends. I, I expected that match somehow to end 2-2 and ruin my weekend. Like, w- once it got to 2-1, I, I genuinely did expect that yeah. match to end 2-2. Even if it was a bad call, a penalty, or something. I just felt like there was just so little positive momentum. Um, but we pull out the win. We get the victory. Yet Klopp goes to the press conference and actually does something he very rarely does and actually kind of singled out Nunez for some positional defensive mistakes and talked about how much he has to learn about his positional awareness and specifically talks about him being at fault for leaving space in the goal and kind of leaving uh, Robertson out to dry. Do you think that is, I'd like to say, oh, that's him talking through the papers to get a guy motivated, except the guy doesn't understand the fucking language. So, like, what's he really saying there other than deminimizing to some of our commenters maybe his best performance in a red shirt? I don't know, man. It's a weird comment to make. The only thing that I can think of is that he, like, Klopp is very good at deflecting. And I think that he just wanted to move the conversation along. And that was a, like a, an easy point for him to pick out was positioning. Why you pick Nunez out of anybody like in this system, talking about your secondary striker. That's just a weird one to me. I mean, but let's face it. What else is he going to talk about? Is he going to talk about the fact that he didn't like change any of the tactics or formation second half? Is he going to talk about some of the head scratching substitutions he made? Is he going to talk about any of the, like the big things that are real hard questions to answer? No. So, I mean, I think, you know, your new transfer is probably an easy thing to talk about. Yeah, it's, it, it's a good point. Um, before we move on to kind of the rest of the news of the day, any other um, points to the match, things that stood out to you, any other players you were o- either overly impressed with or overly disappointed in? Um, Cause we've really focused here really on kind of, you know, most quality and of course Nunez and Kanate. Anyone else out there that jumped out at you one way or the other? I mean, we talked about a little bit. I thought Mo had a really, really good game, like just in yeah. general uh, on both sides, uh, both offensively and defensively. I thought he was a handful. I thought he was really good. He had a Sparky's point, like uh, Jones, but we we've talked about this before. Uh, Curtis yeah, we're Jones. We're not the people. We're not the people to give yeah. an impartial Jones, Curtis Jones conversation because yeah, I think me we'll and talk you, about- me and you would uh, spell it with the O and we would add the O to that and make sure everyone knew he was surely not enough. You know, and, and this is like the midfield conversation, right? I think that Curtis Jones, Oxley Chamberlain, uh, no fault of his own, and Nabby Lad, all fault of his own, I think, uh, need to be gone in January. Like, I mean, those are just three players uh, on on wages that we depend on and get zero production from. Um, and the Nabby thing's a weird one. I'll just comment on that because I know that's around there. Look, I don't believe that this. I don't believe that this guy's been injured at all. I, I think that he got dinged up a little bit at the end of last year. I think he was upset over minutes last year. I think he wasn't named to the Champions League squad, and when he wasn't named to the Champions League squad, I think he officially went on strike. And I think this is a continuous situation. Uh, I don't think we'll ever see him in a red kit again. I don't think he'll be back playing any minutes. I think he's gone in January. Um, and I mean. It's a shame because we're we're finally starting to play some formations. I think he'd actually be really good in. He played a four two 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 at Leipzig, and we played that a couple times. Uh, so 
it just is what it is, man. He never clicked. I didn't think he ever really like was able to do to work on both sides of the ball like we needed him to. Uh, I think he's a phenomenal talent. I think he'll be good elsewhere. I just don't think it worked out, and unfortunately, it's going to end badly. Yeah, I'm with you there. I I do think he's on strike. Um, now I'll say this: I've I've been critical of Klopp's. If you're going to credit Jurgen Klopp for his amazing man management skills. Someone will need to tell me if you're not going to sell a player when he wants to leave because you don't have a formidable replacement, but there was all summer to find a replacement. If you're not going to sell a player who wants to leave and you're going to force him to stay to try to get the best out of him, how does leaving him off a Champions League roster under any pretense or circumstance help your squad? So if that was a Sacco like Sacco move, like a I'm going to lay a marker down here to this club to show them who's in charge and what's going on. And if you embarrass us, we'll, you know, push you out to the pasture. Then why not have just let him get his move, make your 30 million. And again, yeah. it comes back to constantly losing players for free and me having a real problem with the fact that we don't manage our assets, but the match was great. We pick up our three points um, during our Premier League show. We'll look at the table this week. So we wake up this morning and it's the Champions League draw. And I can't lie, uh, I kind of forgot. And I was laying in bed, and I think it was Mike Martin in our group and our Discord channel. And if you're not in our Discord channel, send us a message and get involved if you want to get woken up by people asking you who's watching the Champions League draw at 6 a.m. Um, and it made me go, oh. So I literally click on the video, and I start the video. And as I started, I'm not even kidding the guy pulls out the Liverpool ticket and I rolled over to Kelly and said, well, I'll guarantee the next name is either Real Madrid or Bayern Munich. And literally he's like, and they will play Real Madrid. And I was like, you fucking sons of bitches. Cause honestly, <laughs> I would have rathered, I would have rathered stomach a week worth of Sadio Mane posts from the new Bayern fans that are in all of our social media channels, then I think I would stomach actually having to play Real Madrid twice. Um, well, I and there goes the conspiracy theory from our good friend Nick Paquin on uh, just the good teams getting through to play each other at the end. Yeah, exactly, because that didn't exactly come up here. <laughs> uh, Dave Leslie clearly finds uh, this commentary hilarious and or thinks I'm crazy, which in which case I will tell you, Dave, both are true. Just imagine you could join the Discord channel and get this shit at six in the morning. Unsolicited. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I got to be honest. It was brutal, but let's we have we're going to have plenty of time between now and February on this podcast to talk a lot about that matchup and what it means for us. Right. And I think that. Clearly, we get our chance at revenge, right? We get our opportunity um, to take them over two legs. I do feel like we're better equipped to beat a side of that quality over two legs than we are in a one-off final, because I think in a one-off final, greatness can overtake. And, you know, in the first one, it was literally Gale, Garrett Bale scoring two of the most worldly goals, and then the ridiculous um, mistake, and we lose Mo early. So there's just everything wrapped up in one. And we talked about it last year. They had one of the single greatest performances of a goalie in oh, any yeah. one moment oh, yeah. ever. And if you give a player of Vinicius's talent a chance like that, he'll bury it. And he did. 
and they were deserved of winning that cup last year. You know, um, I, I, I just, what I look at this as when you look at this draw of all eight of these, which one are you most excited to see? And which one do you think actually brings the biggest chance for either upset or drama? So if I was a neutral, I would say Liverpool, Real Madrid. Like, I mean, yep. it's, 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 you, it's like almost one of those things where it's like, you wouldn't cast this in a movie, right? Cause it, it's not believable. Like, and that's when like, we always get like the conspiracy theories because it's just too fucking good. The storylines are too good here. Right. Um, I say if I'm looking for an upset out of this group, it's tough because a lot of these teams are, I think are pretty even um, across the board. But like, if I'm looking for an actual upset, I mean, I'll, I'll go Leipzig. I know they're not having the greatest year, but like over two legs, I, I think anything can happen for City in the Champions League. And if I'm looking at any of these other matchups, uh, th- to me, there's not in like heavy favorites going up against any scary teams, in my opinion. And a lot of these are pretty – like I think Napoli is arguably the best team in all of football right now. I, I think um, Tottenham, Milan will probably be pretty even. Club Bruges played their pants off in the group stage. You never know what's going to happen with that in Benfica. Uh, Benfica's off to a fairly good start this year. Uh, Inter's not what they were last year. Neither is Porto. Uh, PSG and Bayern are two heavyweights. So it's like, I, I mean, those two pictures at the top to me are, are the interesting ones. Uh, just in terms of, I think Leipzig traditionally can punch above its weight and Manchester city is always able to punch below their weight in this, this competition. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think the top one is the, the sexiest of all the, of all the of all the ties, I do think the the repeat and the rematch of uh, the final of two years ago or three years ago between PSG and Bayern, um, that has to be a big big one just from the sheer volume of the names, yeah. uh, the fact Pretty that legendary both, clubs. both of these two clubs entire seasons are judged upon how they do in this tournament at this point because they walk mm-hmm. their domestic leagues, so you know. That's really interesting. Plus, it is an absolute, like, juxtaposed position of tactics and style, right? You have the Bayern Giants. You have the PSG oil money. You have Messi and Neymar and Mbappe. And then even though Bayern is as great as they are, you know, it's not Lewandowski anymore. It's not even really Thomas Muller's team. It's a new – it's Serge Gnabry and Sadio Mane and – and and the young Musla kid, I mean, such talent all over the pitch. Um, that one's really interesting for me. What I say surprised me the most here, and I didn't even realize it till this morning, I think it shows a little bit of a change. You know, we've talked about this in the past. Four teams from the EPL making it to the round of 16 does not surprise anyone. It's happened, I want to say, four or five of the last six years. Um Four teams out of Germany yeah. does surprise me a little bit. Yeah. Um, and lastly, three teams out of Italy should shock everybody in Italy because they usually struggle in this in this tournament. And I think to your point, you know, Napoli, Napoli, Milan, and Inter could all get through. And on the betting line, they might actually be favorites. And if Italy ever had three teams in the quarterfinals, they would lose their mind 
And then they would have to pinch themselves and realize that Juve's cheating asses aren't one of them. And they would be even happier to find that out, right? <laughs> We're talking about teams like PSG and Bayern walking the league. And Juve is literally in the Europa League playing in some freaking uh, playing game. And those of you that are out there, the conspiracy theorists in the world, just go take a look at the looks on the faces of both the delegate from Barca and the delegate from United when they pull their names up and say that they have to play in a playoff round to get to the knockout stages of the Europa League. I honestly couldn't have been happier. You know what um, else would be good in this group? I'll tell you what would be good. I'd like to see one leg with Pulisic on Dortmund and one leg with him and Chelsea and see what happens. Or, or since he's probably not going to play anyway, just have him announce both legs. Like as a color commentator. Well, first of all, anyone who is – an American who's ever heard him speak knows we want no part of the color commentary because that shit would just put you to sleep because he is as boring as the day is long. I say it all the time. American soccer needs a personality. And, well, it sure as hell ain't him. Like, I will. I don't like Tyler Adams' game overall, but I have to raise my hand and say I've been absolutely shocked at how well he's yeah. taken to the Premier League. Yeah. And he deserves all the credit because he always said he wanted the prem move and he's made it. Um, but, you know, give me Weston McKenney all day if I need the personality of an American soccer player because he actually seems like a guy I'd want to have a beer with. Christian Pulisic reminds me of the guy who literally would be like, asking about like who's cleaning his boots tonight and like you know what the after match meal is when the rest of us are trying to figure out who's throwing the keg party on friday night you know and he's thinking about yeah. like the training table because he's already hurt um to mutual he's, he's, he's a dude that has like monogram koozies and croquis you know what i mean oh no question no question probably has his own um uh, definitely probably like has his own like like customized like uh cornhole setup in the backyard with like his own face on it yeah. or something you know yeah, like just sure. absolutely Probably plays like bocce ball and shit like that <laughs> yes look at us um so Tamuchin <laughs> chimes in couldn't make the podcast but he chimed in proud of paul bickler someone literally messaged me to tell me you guys did trivia yeah he's by not bickler of all people Layla's winning an award here but bickler deserves one as well yeah well, he's not for really doing our family friend. stuff this is probably just my semi-annual review Pretty much. Probably is. So we will absolutely get back to the Champions League between now and February. And I thought we'd leave more time for this conversation. I'm actually happy we didn't. Uh, we have 10, 12 minutes, so we will try. Um, but we would be remiss to be a Liverpool uh, talking show and not – at least give our input and or opinions on the news of the day. And it's not often that a big three points and a win against the top six rival wouldn't be top news. It's not often that who you're going to play in the champions league, let it alone be the fact you're playing the title holders in real Madrid be top news. But then, you know, about eight and a half minutes after the draw got concluded, David Ornstein drops this you know, bombshell on the football world. Liverpool have been put up for sale by Fenway Sports Group. Sale deck has been produced for interested parties. Goldman and Saxon, Morgan Stanley assisting in the valuation process. Unclear if deal gets done, but FSG inviting offers. And I will say oh, here, 
I do want to acknowledge there is something awkward about this photo. They use it all the time. Um, and for whatever reason, it looks like Klopp is sort of holding hands with John Henry while John Henry is holding his wife's breast in front of the cameras. And it doesn't make sense. But then again, if my wife was 45, it doesn't help that John Henry looks like the crypt keeper in this picture. That's I was just going to say, it doesn't help that she looks young enough to be his granddaughter, let alone his daughter. But then again, if my wife looked like that, she would probably be everywhere with me. I mean, wait, Kelly. You do look like that, and you are with me everywhere I go. Hey. Um, whoops. Dead. Um, so, Paul, before we go into the who's and the why's, initially, what was your response when the first report came out, before clicking on the article, before even thinking it through? What were you thinking? It was just more like a uh, – like. <laughs> Uh, like a really like primal what like I was just like like I didn't really fully process that because the headline is so aggressive like it's so Liverpool put up for sale like like they're just out the side of the like the, they're, like they're on the fucking curb with like, the sign whole, like, in yeah it. they got a sign right. up says you know for sale my club like, uh buy now or best offer like uh like I mean it just like it was so aggressive. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit like my first initial thought was this can't be right. Like, and then I clicked into it and it was more along the lines of like, this can't be right. Cause the wording of the response doesn't insinuate anything about a majority ownership transfer. It just talks about additional shareholders, which is literally like, this could have been the headline five years ago. Like, I feel like we did this five years ago. Like, um, and, you know, I know that they have aggressively looked at wanting to acquire teams across Europe, very similar to how, what Manchester City does. That's going to require spending power to, to just go up against sovereign nations. PSG, uh, Newcastle, City requires that. So, like, to me, it just looks like they're trying to pull more funding. Um, I do think there's probably some merit to, like, look, they've been in conversation with Goldman and Sachs for a while now. For, they've been getting advice for years from them. So my thought was like, they continue to have this conversation with Goldman and Sachs. They come to Sachs, they come back from the valuation, the number's higher. And they're like, oh, well, I mean, and then Goldman and Sachs was like, would you consider selling? And they were like, I mean, if we got, you know, I think they would, I think they would need, you know, the 4 billion number keeps going around. Chelsea just sold for 5.2. I think that Liverpool would go for more than 5.2, given the market. But I, but but the five point two is a fake number because that included the two that included the two billion that they weren't paying. They actually paid three point eight billion. That included the two one point four billion that was owed to Abramovich that he wrote off in loans. So the actual sale price of what they actually put up in cash and capital was three point eight billion. The price of the sale was the unforgiven loan portion. So I question whether four to four and a quarter billion. Listen to us. We're talking about whether or not we'd sell something. Actually, at what time do those goddamn Powerball numbers come out? I'm going to find out. And this is the I only time we get to talk about billion dollars, okay? Um, I mean, let's, just, yeah, let's I, just let it rip, Gally. I think where I have trouble here is, is there were three different reports in the last year that the club was up for sale. Three different types of reports like this, none of which substantiated by anyone as in the know as David Ornstein. And the fact that David Ornstein actually put his name on this and beat everyone to it lets me think there's a little smoke to this fire. Now I'm with you guys. I actually believe this all started as them looking into getting more investment into the club. 
But I also believe they are solid, solid business people, like great business people. And I think any good business person worth their weight, you know, is going to look at all options. And the only thing also that's not in this statement that's on the screen is nowhere in here does it say that the club is not for sale. And the other two times that they've been rumored to be selling the club, they have unequivocally said our club is not for sale. And then here they say all the right things except for we're not selling the club. Now, my other part to it is, is it's very rare that the other local mouthpieces chime in, right? Like we know Dave, that Pier James Pierce used to be tied in. We've talked about, you know, we're not even going to mention the Instagram model on this uh, podcast because it doesn't warrant the time or the space. But these were, these are attributed to Pierce getting run at by people telling him that basically Ornstein was a joke. And, you know, one thing is, is when a journalist puts their name on something and they're an actual journalist. And David Ornstein is a very good journalist. Maybe the most informed journalist in English football. They have, there is some credibility. I'm sorry, there has to be. And the fact that the Globe started running the stories they did, the fact that James Pierce is even acknowledging it has been knocked back multiple times in the past. They have clearly asked bankers to figure out what the value of the club is whether that's for partial or full sale, they're doing things that they've never been open to talking about doing at the exact same time that they're seeing their products slightly diminish on the pitch and on the field. And, you know, as a Red Sox fan, I've watched what they do. And when they take over a business, they almost act as if they are a hedge fund, Right. They like almost like they're cat, like they are a, like a, a, like really like a wealth management company. They invest in the infrastructure of the business. It's not just what's on the pitch. It was the practice facility. It was the two new stands. They increased revenues. They decided not to build a new stadium, both at Fenway and at Anfield after making the first proclamation that they would build the stadium. And at some point they are going to cash in like this isn't a group who is ever going to pass this down to their son or their daughter or the next generation, or maybe his, you know, 35 year younger wife, you know, Linda Pizzuti isn't going to be running this club after the crypt keeper, you know, takes his final steps. So at some point, the value only gets so high and you start to diminish returns. And there are a lot of reasons right now that say that the value of this club may not get much higher, especially if, if they believe that they're going to struggle now that Arsenal is back towards the top of the table. You know, Spurs are putting money in, have a billion-dollar stadium. They're going to continue to invest. And now you have Newcastle coming in, and you already have City, and you have United back, whether we like it or not, coming back closer to respectability than where they were. So maybe they do look at this and say, you know, to all the reports coming out of Boston today and coming out of some of the Washington papers that they have made inquiries into possibly buying the Washington football team. I still can't call them the commanders. I'm sorry. Um, you know, they've always wanted to own an NFL team. They have made it very, very clear. I've said this before. They cannot stand the crafts. They are like the Hatfield and the McCoys here in the sports world. They don't get along. And I think they've always wanted that NFL team. And I don't think they have the financial wherewithal to buy an NFL team without selling some of their assets. So I'm not saying this is legit, but I'm saying there is some smoke to this fire. And if the right deal comes in, I think they will sell. 
at the same time, I don't think we have anything to worry about because I don't think they're going to ever sell to uh, a sovereign wealth fund. I don't think they will ever sell um, to, you know, even to a, a, a Mike Ashley like despicable owner. I think they would vet out owners that they felt comfortable with. And I do believe if they could, they would stay involved with it. But I think the fact that they're talking minority or majority and it's multiple reporters on both sides of the pond reporting this, I feel like as Liverpool supporters, it's kind of unrealistic. It's like half the group hates the ownership and wants them out. And the other half of the group wants to defend them like like, like they would never sell. Like this is all great. Like to me, that if it is true what was reported today, I don't see anything wrong with their process or what they're doing. Do you? From a business standpoint? No. And I, I mean, I think that's the thing. Like the more we talk about like, oh, you know, they they would they would entertain the prospect of more minority shareholders, right. To continue to roll funds. Like we did that with Redbird. Like how sustainable is that before it's no longer majority share? Like you can't only do that a couple times with sizable investments before you're no longer the majority because it's all been sold off. So I think, yeah, like it's not a sustainable model in terms of like continuing that. So, and I think you're right. I mean, like, look, let's face it. Like when we get down to the brass tacks, when we get down to the actual nitty gritty of like what FSG is to a Liverpool supporter, they're loved or they're hated. I wouldn't say loved. They're probably either respected or hated. Um, And I think when we look at Liverpool supporters that don't support FSG, that don't like American owners in general, I think there's a natural distrust for Americans. I accept that for what it is. But I think people – universally across if they're being honest with themselves i think that they like how things have been done they don't like why things have been done because they don't like the fact that this is a business consortium that essentially manages their things like a portfolio and i for one love that because i don't have anyone who manages my shit like before portfolio which i need because like they will always look out for the best long-term interest of the club. They will they manage risk reward. They want to strengthen from within. And I think ultimately they're very much like Mo. I think their success has been their downfall because like we the numbers, oh, they bought it for 300 million and now it's four billion. They're gonna walk away. I'm like, look, you can't be FSG out. And then when they sell, criticize them for making a profit. Because they fucking made that profit. They, they reinvested into the club. They assembled arguably the greatest starting 11 of all time. They redid the grounds. They extended the stadium. They renovated the stadium. They made all the pieces of the club have value that didn't have value before it. That's how you get from 300 million to 4 billion with success. And like, you can't sit here and argue the results, demand a sale, and then criticize them for being successful. Like doesn't and and that's where I come back to. I mean, I think this speaks to, and I don't want to go open this can of worms, and we're gonna wrap this thing up here in a second, but I think this speaks to in some ways why they were willing to gamble with the emotions around the super league. I think without the super league, the super league in their mind allowed them guaranteed revenue to compete with the other powers that they can't compete with. And one thing I will say. They don't like finishing second. 
Take a look at the Boston Red Sox over the last decade. They've basically either won the World Series, finished second, or finished dead last because they developed a process that once they started spreading their assets around, they couldn't just keep dumping money into the Red Sox like they did in 03, 04, and at the beginning when the run started. Now, they've won five World Series titles in 20 years after the after the club waited 100 years to win one. And, and there isn't a single person sitting here in New England that says a negative thing about them other than the tickets are too much and they don't love the fans as much as the old owners and they don't away, oh, but they win. And listen, there'll be a day when they're no longer the owners of Liverpool football club. I hope it doesn't happen soon. And I think we will miss them. And I think as a whole, the club will miss them. But this whole holier than thou mentality that either they're money grabbing Americans or they're cheap as shit. There's gotta be some middle ground that just calls them smart. Like, and that's the part that drives me nuts. And I think I hate it that you're either they're liars. They got to go get me Arab money. Right. Which is disgusting and wrong all in itself. Or it's the opposite. It's, they never said this. They're just looking for investment. This reporter is looking for clickbait news flash people reporters don't write headlines that's not their job their job is to actually report what they're hearing and this guy is citing sources from inside the club and inside the financials and the boston globe stories those sources are coming from inside fsg the guy owns the globe like <laughs> there, there is something here i think they're still the owners come next summer but if the right offer comes in, I, I won't be shocked to hear that they're planning their exit out. And uh, we'll end it with this. This whatever looking trophy comes back up to the coffers and we get to make a move to try to retain it. Do you give two shits or do you roll out the 19 year olds on Wednesday seriously to have less matches to play in January when football matters again? Nah, last year was the year we cared about the cups. I don't care this year. Roll the kids out, man. I don't care if you're rolling the ball boy out there. I'm not kidding when I say this. I would literally start Ramsey. I would start the 16-year-old dope kid. I would start the Polish prince. I would start yeah. – hell, I don't even know I'd risk Kelleher. I might play Adrian. And anyone who's listening <laughs> to this podcast knows I would basically rather play Big Red in goal than Adrian. Okay? My goal with Brazilian Adrian kid. is – goalkeeper let's get him up there my my whole reason of rolling out adrian is is i think it honestly assures us the best chance of being eliminated from this cup well it also and i'm dead serious squad up over 20 just that one player i'm serious when i say it i i genuinely i i've never hoped that they would bow out of a cup more i don't think we need any more matches in december or january um, it's going to be an absolute shit show as the league cup goes through. Um, it's going to be three more midweek matches and they are playing, uh, two legged ties in the semifinals, which is just asinine. Um, I can't believe they haven't scrapped the replays in the fourth round or the fifth round That's of the crazy. FA cup. Like crazy. we're going to literally play football till June and God, I hope by then this football team looks like the football club last June and not the one from this season. Well, um bickler it's been fun as always um everyone please thank you for your comments all of your questions um like comment share bring a friend let them know about it if you'd like to join our discord reach out if for any reason 
um, you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, what are you waiting for? Get on over uh, YouTube and search for American Scouser. You'll see all of our ugly mugs all over the place. You can go ahead and subscribe. You'll get automatic updates. Our Monday pod, our Thursday pod, the fantasy show, the EPL show. Um, and for all of us here at American Scouser, thank you for watching. And we will be back with you Thursday night. <laughs>